Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our Christmas series that we've titled The Gift. And of course, the gift that we are talking about is Jesus. And the reason that Jesus came on that first Christmas was because we were all so desperately in need of a Savior. And if you haven't experienced him yet on a personal level, my prayer is that you will. Because there is no greater gift that has ever been given than the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, I told you in our opening uh, sermon in this series that we are all hardwired to love. Well, I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but you were also engineered for hope. You don't live by instinct. Every decision you make, every choice you make, every response that you have to the situations and the relationships in your life are all fueled and motivated by hope. Your story, the story of your life is a hope story. And the happiest moments of your life are hope moments. Conversely, your saddest moments are all about hope dashed or or hope destroyed. You're always looking for hope. You're always attaching the hope of your heart to something. And here's really what hope is. Hope is always an object or an expect and an expectation, not or, and an expectation. You're always hoping in something or someone and asking that something or someone deliver something to you. That's what hope is. Unfortunately, we often look for hope in the wrong places. We look for hope where hope can't be found. And so we're often, we find ourselves disappointed and and, and frustrated and confused because we want things to give us hope that just cannot bring us hope. And so this morning, I would like you to turn your Bibles to the, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 59. What we are going to read this morning is a brilliant passage of hope. And it was written in a very dark moment. It's one of the darkest moments in the history of the nation of Israel. But before I describe this moment to you, I wanna ask you a question. When, when life is hard or difficult or confusing to you, when you are dealing with the unexpected, when your story is not what you want your story to be, where do you run for hope? Where do you run for comfort? Where do you run for security? Where do you run and hide? Where is your functional hope? Well, the children of Israel have been in captivity in Babylon, but now they have come back to Jerusalem and things are a mess. There are no city walls. There's no more temple. There is no central government. There is no enforceable set of laws. There's there's no obvious leadership. There is no justice. Let me tell you what there is, however. There is violence in the streets. There is massive poverty. There is complete, fundamental, widespread social breakdown. It's a mess. So into all that darkness comes a brilliant discussion 
of hope. Maybe one of the greatest that you'll find in all of the scriptures. And the reason that this discussion of hope is, is so important is because it is within those dark moments where your true, real hope will be exposed. And your true, real hope will either come through for you or it will greatly disappoint you. So I wanna outline this chapter in Isaiah for you because I think it will be helpful. It divides itself into four different sections that leads us where real hope can be found. The first section begins with a false charge in verse one. Then in verses two through eight, you will find a divine accusation. And how many of you realize that when God accuses you, you had better listen? Then in verses nine through 15, that contains a very important confession. And finally, in verses 16 through 20, you'll find God's answer, his divine intervention. And I wanna do one more thing before we unpack Isaiah 59. I wanna mention four things about hope that I believe will come, will come clear to you through this passage. And the first one is this, the Christmas story is itself a story of hope. It's about hope created, hope lost, and hope restored. The second thing about hope that might sound a bit confusing to you at first, but, but you'll, you'll understand as we go through this passage is the doorway to hope is hopelessness. The only way you will ever find true hope is to give up on those things that you've tended to put your hope in that just can't deliver. The third thing that we learn about, we'll learn about hope is a, is a reliable and trustworthy hope must fix what is broken. In order for hope to truly be hope, it must address the biggest, deepest, darkest dilemmas of our lives. If hope cannot fix what is broken, then why in the world would we put hope in it? And then the fourth thing that we see, or we're going to see about hope is, hope is not a situation, it's not a location, it, it is not an experience. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. So having said all of that, Let's read Isaiah chapter 59, verse one. We'll start with verse one. Today, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. I like to mix up the translations every once in a while. I'm sorry. I, I'm big on New King James and NIV, but I wanted to do uh, the uh, ESV's version this morning. And here's what verse one says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. You may, under, you may not understand where this verse is going, so let me explain it to you. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is answering a charge that the children of Israel are making against God. And it's the same charge that, that all of us have at one time in our life made in our own circumstances. When life isn't working, when we are suffering in some way, when we are greatly disappointed in some way, 
when our comfort and our ease that we so often enjoy is interrupted, it's very tempting for us to bring God into the court of our judgment, where we question his faithfulness and we question his goodness and we question his wisdom and we question his love. It's very tempting for you and I to say, God, where are you? Where is your faithfulness? Where's your grace? Where is your love? I thought you were near to me. I thought you answered my prayers, God. Where are you? At this moment in time, in the book of Isaiah, that's exactly what these people were doing. And here's what's devastating about this. When you allow your heart to begin to question God's wisdom, when you allow your heart to begin to question God's goodness, when you allow your heart to begin to question his presence, then quite simply, you won't run toward him for help. Because you don't go for help to someone or something that you have come to doubt. It's that simple. So even if it is subtle, that accusation of God is a very spiritually dangerous thing for you and I to do. Have you ever been there? All eight of you agree and say, yes, I've said that to the Lord. You've all said it to the Lord. You can raise your hands, it's okay. We, we're, we're real in this church. You ever question God? Yes. Sorry, got a little edgy there. <laughs> My wife, I love you, baby. Thank you for being there for me and raising your hand. When God, when you don't think God is near as you thought he was, you'll quit running to him. And that's exactly what is happening here in this scripture. So God replies, he says, no, uh -uh, you've got it all wrong. What's going on is not a sign that my hands are too short to reach you. What's going on is not that my ears are so dull that I can't hear you. I'm not the problem here. In fact, if you look at other places in the Old Testament, what's going on in the lives of these people is exactly the opposite of that. In Amos chapter four, and by the way, Amos chapter four is, is essentially a poem that has a refrain that happens again and again with these words, but you have not returned to me. What God is saying is that I've brought these difficulties into your life in order to pry open your hands and let go of the things that you're putting your hope in so that you would run to me, so that you would place your faith and your trust in me, so that you would return to me. These difficulties you're experiencing are not a sign of, of, of my unfaithfulness or my inattention. In fact, these difficulties are a sign for you to know that I am near. These difficulties, ladies and gentlemen, are actually what you would call the tools of uncomfortable grace. Can grace ever be uncomfortable? Yes. 
You see, often the grace of God comes to us in uncomfortable forms. And that's exactly what's going on here. God says, I love you. And I'm seeking to wrap my arms around you. I'm seeking to get you to return to me in real, true, living faith. So I have brought you through difficulty, not because I don't love you, and not because I can't hear your prayer, not because I am too weak to help you, not because I don't care. I have done so precisely because I love you and I am near to you. You've got it wrong. This is a misplaced charge. Well, that misplaced charge from the people is now followed by a divine accusation from God. In fact, there's a brilliant diagnostic to be found in these verses. Look at Isaiah 59, verse two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And then it goes on to describe the real problem. You see, here's what I like to think. I like to think that my biggest, deepest problems in life are outside of me and not inside of me. They're problems of situations. They're problems of locations. They, or they're problems of, of relationships. I like to think that I'm one of the good guys, but in his response, God sets me straight. He says, no. I'm not the problem. Let me tell you what the problem is. You're the problem, David. It's you. The problem actually exists inside of you. You know, it seems comforting for us as human beings to say, I'm not the problem. In fact, I think that's why people like to protest so much. And, 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 and Lord knows we've seen our share of protests in America over the last three years, haven't we? But what's interesting is you'll never find a person at a protest holding a sign above their head with an arrow pointing down at them saying, I'm the problem. Have you ever seen that in your life? No. Why? Because the reason that we love to protest is because we get to say, ha you're the problem. And I'm not. Gets me off the hook. It's just stupid. It really is, because at the base of all of those things we believe are problems, what do you find? You find people. You find us. You find me. Think with me for just a moment. There is no such thing as a bad marriage, as if something happens to my marriage that doesn't involve me. People ask, how did I get into this bad marriage? It's, it's just craziness. It doesn't make any sense. A bad marriage is a bad marriage because the people in the marriage are doing bad things. At the bottom of a bad marriage, who do you find? You find me. What about a toxic workplace? There's no such thing as a toxic workplace. The workplace never did anything bad. So why are workplaces toxic? Because people in that workplace are lazy, don't want to do their job, they're cruel, they're jealously motivated, they're discouraging, and they create a toxic environment. At the base of a toxic workplace, what do you find? You find me. You, me, 
I'm not, I'm not your problem at your toxic workplace. I, I may be at mine, but not at yours. There's no such thing as a corrupt government. Oh man, we got some real political people in this church. Let me tell you, I can sit that I have great conversations with people. People in Northern California love politics. And I love, and I love riling people up in, in political conversations sometimes. But there is no such thing as a corrupt government. The institution itself is not the problem. The problem is the people in government have used their power for personal gain. And they have forgotten about the, their, their responsibility to take care of the, the needs of its citizenry. You get to the bottom, that's right, Brother Darrell. Let's talk politics this morning. You get to the bottom of a corrupt government, and what do you find? You find me. So the minute you sit under God's charge, and the minute you realize what he's saying, it is a brilliant diagnostic, we're the problem. We have taken God's beautiful, glorious, wisely created institutions, and we've made a mess out of them. It's me. And that means I can't find hope by running to a new location because guess what I find there? I find me there. I can't run to a new situation because guess what I'll find there? I find me. I can't run to a new relationship because guess what I find there? I find me. You'll never find hope in that way. It cannot be found because God is right. His diagnostic here is spot on in that the problem is something that lurks inside of me and you and it is dark and it is dangerous and it kidnaps our thoughts and it diverts our desires and it, and it distorts our words and it even drives our behavior. And the prophet Isaiah uses three words here for this thing, iniquity, transgression, and sin. The first word is iniquity. Iniquity means moral uncleanliness. We like to think that we're pure, but we're not pure. We, we, our, our motives aren't always pure. Our desires aren't always pure. Our purposes aren't always pure. Our thoughts aren't always pure. There is moral uncleanliness inside of us. The second word is transgression. Transgression is high-handed rebellion. It's willingly stepping over boundaries that we know are there. We willingly step over the boundaries of God's rules and we do it because at least at that moment, we just don't care. It, it, it's the moment that you park in the no parking spot even though you see the sign, but you just don't care. If as a husband this week, you yelled at your wife. You didn't yell at your wife because you were ignorant that that is wrong. You yelled at your wife because at that moment you didn't give a rip that you were wrong because there was something that, that you wanted. So you decided to throw and assert yourself and yell. If you cheat on your taxes, you don't cheat on your taxes because you're ignorant that it is wrong and you could end up in a federal penitentiary one day. You cheat on your taxes because at that moment you don't really care what's right and what you don't care what's wrong. You willingly step over that boundary because you want something else. You want something for you. The third word is sin. Sin is falling short of the mark. And we do it again and again and again. It's pulling back that arrow in a bowl as far as we can. 
and we let go and it falls short of the target every single time. Therefore, because there is yet iniquity inside of us and because there is yet transgression inside of us and because there is yet sin inside of us, we make a mess out of God's good creations. So you just can't blame situations and and you just can't blame locations and you just can't blame other people because at the bottom of all of it is you and me. Can we all agree to that? Oh, you didn't have to clap. I just wanted you to agree. We are our greatest problem. We are the thing that needs to be fixed the most and it's inside of us. It's not outside of us. That's the truth. And you'll never find hope if you don't listen to God's accusations in this scripture. Well, then that accusation is followed by a confession. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. What I just read is a description of people who have completely lost their way. And they're so lost that all of a sudden it's like someone has turned the lights out in their life and they're in complete darkness. The picture portrayed here is one of people who are groping along a wall. Have you ever went into a room that was so dark that you couldn't find the light switch? And so what you do is you, you, you use the wall to help you to go in the right direction to where eventually you can find it. When you've lost your way and you are at a very significant moment of decision, you're, gonna, you're either gonna point the finger or you are gonna make a confession. And actually what happens, um, actually what happens is if you look at Isaiah 59, 12 through 13, the people admit, 12 and 13 says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. It's at this moment when we must say, God, we accept it. I accept it. I'm the problem. It's me. And once you arrive to that conclusion, you are now in an utterly hopeless place. Why? Because you're saying, I've got a big, deep, abiding problem that I can't solve. I can run from the situation. I can run from the location. I can run from the relationship, but I can't run from me. Because here's the deal. You can run from yourself as fast as you want, but when you finally get to the other side, you'll always be there. And I don't know if you've figured that out yet, but you can't run from you because you always end up at the end of the run. So this is hopelessness. This is, God, I've got a problem that I cannot solve. And that, ladies and gentlemen, 
That is the doorway to real hope because it tells you that not only is it hopeless to hope in you, but it's hopeless to hope in anyone else because they all suffer from your same condition, your same malady. So all those locations and all those situations and all of those people and places and relationships, they're populated by people who are desperately as hopeless as you and I are. There is no hope to be found. And it's when you give up on all of that horizontal hope between you and I, that when you, that's when you become ready for real hope, where real hope can be found. And that is in a vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. So have you given up on all those hopes yet? I want you to fill in the blank of this question. You don't have to say it out loud. You might embarrass yourself. If, appreciate the laugh, brother. If only I had blank, then my life would be awesome. What is it that fills that blank for you? Well, I can tell you with great confidence that for some of you, if you were honest, it's false hope. Because you think that somewhere, in some situation, in some location, in some person, that you're gonna find a personal savior. That they will be your Messiah, that they will give you life and the peace and the security that you are seeking. Listen, creation has no ability whatsoever to be your Messiah. No person can ever fill that blank for you. If I had a dollar, for every time I heard a husband or a wife say, all I ever wanted was a spouse that made me happy, I would be a gazillionaire. <laughs> and then I immediately think, well, they're doomed. <laughs> because you gotta realize something. Your spouse does not have the ability to produce happiness for you. They are incapable of doing that. Certainly they should love you and they should cherish you, but they can never be the source of your happiness. That will never, ever work. And if you're banking on that, you're in big trouble. What is the biblical view of marriage? It's a flawed person married to a flawed person in a fallen and flawed world. Are you encouraged yet? Let me complete this statement. Marriage is a flawed person. Well, we just had a marriage yesterday. This is good stuff, Lisa. I don't care. What. Too bad Jeffrey and Brooke aren't here to listen to this. Would you send a clip to him? Marriage is a flawed person married to a flawed person in a fallen and flawed world, but with a faithful God. And some of you have to abandon false hope. You gotta abandon all that stuff. You're not gonna meet a person who's gonna give you life. You're not gonna get a job that is gonna make your life worth living. You're not gonna own a possession that is going to bring happiness that you've been seeking. You're not gonna have an experience that is going to fulfill you. None of that stuff will ever happen. It's incapable for it to happen. And that is the truth, folks. So let me go back to what I said earlier. It really is hopelessness that begins to open the doorway of hope. Look at the brilliance 
of where this passage goes next, starting in the second half of verses 15 to 16, it says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Here's what God is saying. He looks around and he says, there is no horizontal place for hope to be found, none. No one is, is able to give you the hope that you're seeking, no one. But in light of this disaster, and in light of this lostness, in light of all this rebellion and transgression and sin and iniquity, I want you to look at what God does next. He doesn't turn his back. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm vaporizing all of you. Here's what he does in the second part of verse 16. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Whenever you see the phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord or something close to that, it, it, is, he is, it is referring to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, is saying, now that you've come to the point where you utterly have no hope and nowhere to look, I am going to send you hope but it won't be in a situation and it won't be found in a human relationship and it won't be in some new destination. It will be a person and his name is Jesus. Hope is going to come. That is the Christmas story, High Point. The Christmas story is about hope coming. That's why the angels sang all of those glorious songs. That's why the wise men came to worship the Christ child. That's why the shepherds were literally blown away by it all because hope had invaded the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Hope had come. Hope that had been so long lost. Hope that had been destroyed is now returning in the person of Jesus. And that promised hope would bring two things with him. Justice and grace. Look at verses 17 through 19. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Our God is going to deal with evil, folks. He is going to punish wrong. And the words that are here in this, in this graphic word picture should bring you both terror and comfort. They should make you both serious and afraid, but they should comfort you at, at, at the same time. Why should they make you serious and afraid? Because it is very clear that the prophet is saying that this world is a moral world ruled by a holy God who takes sin very, very seriously. Sin is serious. Sin is evil. Sin is disastrous. Sin will ultimately lead to death. And our holy God will never say to you, it's okay for you to sin. 
It's okay for you to transgress. It's okay for you to have iniquity. As long as you're happy, I'm fine. He will never say that to you. No, this is a holy God we're talking about who hates sin. He will not tolerate sin and he will punish sin. You see, the problem is that we don't always see sin as sinful. Sin doesn't always look like evil to us. If you're a teenager here today and you are rebelling against your parents by doing something that they don't want you to do, you're not feeling the danger of sin at that moment. It doesn't seem evil to you. You're feeling the temporary buzz of your independence. That's all you're feeling right now. If you're a man in the shopping mall and you are lusting, you don't actually see the danger at that point. Well, you, you think what you see is beauty, but if you're lusting, you're going down a very, very dangerous and slippery path. It's very clear that we serve a God who is absolutely, perfectly committed to justice. Sin will be dealt with, but there is comfort also in these words. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, Pastor David, it doesn't sound very comforting. Well, here's the comfort. Who would want to live in a world that was ruled by someone who didn't care about justice? Who would want to live in a world where the person ruling was incapable of being angry with evil? There's a way in which God's righteous anger and his holy justice is the hope of the universe. God's anger with sin and his commitment to justice means he will not rest until sin is forever defeated. He will not relent. He will not quit every, until every uh, molecule of sin is eradicated out of the cell of every heart of every one of his children. There will be a moment where there will be no more sin because there is a holy God committed to justice. And at that time, we'll be able to go to the one funeral we will all want to go to, the funeral of sin because sin will die, and we will live in a place where there is no more sin, where there is no more violence, where there is no more evil and no more transgression. That will all be de defeated, and we will serve a just and a mighty God. But I want you to understand something. He doesn't just come armed with justice. The good news is, the greatest news is that he comes armed with grace. Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. God says, I am going to send a redeemer. Redemption is a beautiful term. It, redemption means to buy something back. God says that I'm going to send my son, and he's going to die, live on your behalf, the perfect life that you could not live. And he's gonna take your sin upon himself and die the death that you should have died. But he dies as a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice. His, his death satisfies God's righteous anger. But then he's gonna rise again and he's gonna conquer death in the grave so that he can give you and I eternal life. So by his life, and by his death, and by his resurrection, 
His righteousness is now given into your account and you can stand before a holy God as though you've never, ever sinned. You can now stand unafraid of his wrath and have him wrap his arms of acceptance around you and to invite you into an intimate, personal relationship with him because no longer does your sin separate you from him. That, ladies and gentlemen, is redemption. Verses 16 through 20, they are a prediction of the cross of Jesus Christ. They are actually an announcement of the cross. Because upon that cross of Jesus Christ is the holy justice of God and the amazing grace of God's kiss. Because at that moment, the justice is meted out against Christ. He bears the anger of God. He takes the penalty that was supposed to be ours and the grace of God explodes in abundant forgiveness and mercy. On that cross, the one who is hope brings together the justice and the grace of God. And hope is returned because at that moment where justice and grace meet, it delivers to us the one thing that we need, help with our deepest problem, sin. You see, these Old Testament saints, they were living in the messiness between the already and the not yet. Already they had been redeemed from captivity in Egypt. Already the law had been given to them. Already the many prophets had spoken. Already the glory of God had lived in the center of the people of Israel, but the promised Messiah had yet to come. They were living in messiness between, they were living in messiness and holding on to hope. Well, you and I, when you think about it, we live in the middle of the already and not yet as well. Already Jesus has come the first time. Already he has lived and he has died and he has rose again on our behalf. Already the written word of God has been given. Already the Holy Spirit of the living God has been given, but sin has not yet been completely defeated. And we are not yet in that final kingdom. And so in the messiness of life between the already and the the not yet, you will reach out somewhere for hope. So please let me say again, hope can only be hope when it is placed in the person of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he not only enters your difficulty in this moment, but he promises you a place in eternity, a place where there will be no sickness, where there will be no more suffering, Thank God where there will be no more sin and we will live with him in a place of absolute perfect peace, absolute righteousness, absolute joy forever and ever. But please understand this most important point. If he is guaranteed for you and I a place in eternity, then he is also guaranteed for you and I all the grace that you and I need along the way. Because if you didn't get that grace, you would never arrive into eternity 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the promise of future grace is the promise of present grace in the here and now. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that is your reason for hope. Right there. Because no matter how troubling your life is, no matter how troubling the situations are, no matter how difficult this location can be, no matter how mean and hard and ugly those people can be, you can wake up in the morning and say with the greatest of confidence, I have met hope. Hope has invaded my life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope in my world. Hope has come and hope will come again and he will deliver me out of the messiness between the already and the not yet. Now there's hope. Amen. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me close this down? Would everyone stand to your feet? So another reason Jesus came, another reason that the Christ child was born was to bring you hope. And not just hope for a future, but he brings us hope for living today. And and not just hope for living today, but he offers you everything you need in order to navigate in this fallen world in which we live victoriously as his child. So let me end where I started. You are engineered for hope. And when you lack that hope, your life will never be what God intended it to be. And I can't think of a better Christmas present for you to give to yourself than to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and allow his hope to come alive in you. The Bible says to receive salvation, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the only way to God the Father, and that he came to this earth and he lived a perfect, sinless life. He showed us the love of the Father, but he was arrested and tortured and beaten and killed, but he rose again. And he rose again with resurrection power, and that same resurrection power is what gives us the hope to live, because he's coming again, and he will take us home. You just need to confess that in prayer to him. Tell him you believe in him. Tell him you believe that when he died on the cross, his sin was the cleansing agent, That his blood was the cleansing agent that wiped your sin away and receive that this morning. And you can do that in a simple prayer to the Lord. But I also want to speak to those of you here today who have already received salvation because being a Christian does not eliminate you from seeking hope in something else or someone else. We often look at people for that hope and that happiness that only Christ can deliver. I see it often. I hear it in discussions. Men and women of God seeking for things from other sources that only God can bring. Well, the one thing that you've got to realize is that Jesus is your only hope. Don't place your hope in anything else. That's what's called misplaced hope. And it will only leave you feeling empty inside. I prayed about how I should end this service this morning, and I want to end it with a song. It's uh, my favorite Christmas song called, O Holy Night. My favorite words in this song are the verse that says, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. At that moment when Christ came, 
our souls felt its worth. In God's eyes, everyone has worth. Everyone has value. And as I said when we began, everyone is engineered for hope. And it is Christ who brings that hope alive in your and my heart. So as we sing this song, you can pray and not sing. You can pray to either receive salvation by offering Jesus Lordship over your life, or it would be a good time to recommit yourself to Jesus and to tell him that he alone will be your only source of hope and that you won't place your hope in anything other. As always, this altar is open. If anyone should want to come down and kneel at this altar while we sing, you know the rules here. You can come down and pray. Please feel free to do that. When we are done singing, I will come up and we will close in prayer. Scott. I want to thank you for joining us this morning. I'd like to close our eyes if you bow your heads in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope that he brings. And thank you for the grace that is there for us every single day. Father, sometimes we get caught in the messiness between the already and the not yet. And in that mess, we can get ourselves lost. We can even wrongly accuse you. We can start to find hope, try to find hope in in ourselves or other people or other places where it can't be found. So Lord, I pray that by your grace, you would reclaim the hope of our hearts. Pray that you would draw our hearts to find hope in you. And in those times that are dark and confusing, that we may not run away from you, but instead that we would run toward you. You are our hope. Hope has come and hope will come again. And we thank you. So Lord, as we go about our separate ways today, pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Those conversations, Father, would be ones that would build people up and not tear them down. Pray, Father, that as we go, we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. That we would shine so brightly with the love of Christ that people would literally come to us and ask us what's different about us and we could share your goodness with them. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that as we go, we go in your love. We love our fellow man, even those who are difficult to love. Let them know that we are Christians by our love. Till we gather together again next week, Lord, I pray you'll keep us safe from sickness, disease, from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. I ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. amen. Thank you for being here.